I invite you to open up your Bibles to Judges, Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. It's good to see everyone this morning, uh, whether you're a member or a visitor, especially if you're a visitor, we're uh, honored by your presence and, and we ask that you continue to uh, visit with us, allow us to get to know you uh, a little bit better before you leave. Uh, and always, uh, you're welcome to come back uh, as we have worship services on uh, later this evening at 6 and, and Wednesday nights for Bible class at 7. Um, it is a very good Sunday morning uh, for me, even though I'm extremely tired. Uh, it is just exciting for me. I'm, I'm not that excitable of a person already, but uh, it, it has been an excitable couple of days. Um, I, I will say, when we went to the doctor on Tuesday, we did not expect that that she was going to be giving birth a, a week and a half to two weeks before the due date. Uh, but uh, everything's going well, as as I think was mentioned already. Uh, Paige was discharged yesterday from the hospital, and this afternoon, uh, Hawk is supposed to be. And I'm just excited to be back home and not have to try to sleep in the hospital another night. Now, uh, with that being said mentioned this a little bit in uh, the Bible class, but, you know, someone uh, or two was saying, you know, with how tired you are, maybe this will affect, you know, the length of your sermon. And uh, if that's what you think, well, you don't know me at all. <laughs> no, uh, I, 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 my goal is not to be incredibly wordy or verbose uh, whenever I come up here. Sometimes that may happen. That is always an accident. So, I apologize if that happens. Probably not this morning because, uh, as I said earlier, I probably am being a bit sluggish. Um, but kind of balances out because of the excitement I have from, from the past couple of days. But I just say all that just to ask that you continue to pray for both Paige and, and Hawk uh, as they're both still definitely recovering. And I, I just appreciate that. Um, again, if you want to go ahead and turn to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2. Um, really what we're going to do this morning is, is just look at the book of Judges kind of as an overview. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know why, but I tend to do this. Actually, maybe I do know why. As I read through these, these books as we're going to come to them, and I'm thinking about what I might want to uh, look at specifically, when it comes to these overviews, I think that as you read through uh, the book, you find at least a couple to, to maybe more than a couple of themes that really stand out. Uh, judges, I'm sure it won't be surprising what you see on the screen before you, I think one of those main themes is the notion that you find at the very end of the book, in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, where it says, after a, a terrible, terrible story, um, it just says, you know, with all that uh, being done, at that time there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own sight or in his own eyes. And, and I want to look at this theme particularly this morning because I, I think, for one thing, what you find is just how devastating it is. And also, I want to look at it because I think this gives us a better idea of, of this time period uh, of the judges. This is not a great time. <laughs> you do see characters that come up and show good uh, uh, moments of faith, but that is all they are, mere moments. You have, you have men that come up and why? Because Israel has gone into spiritual harlotry. They have gone and they have sinned against God. They have disobeyed him. And so what does God do? Exactly what he promised all the way back since Moses was warning the people that if you disobey God, well, he, he's going to bring 
the, uh, the curses of disobedience. And so I think it's helpful to look at it from this standpoint because generally when you look at it uh, as kids, you see these really cool stories, especially as a young boy when you see Ehud <laughs> Uh, and that story of, of you know, stabbing, uh, the, it wasn't the Philistines, but stabbing uh, the king and, and the, the fat just kind of covers the sword. He escapes from that. It, it's bloody. So it's everything a boy could want as he's learning a, a story. And it's very easily memorable. Um, but then you look at other parts of Judges, specifically someone like Samson, which we'll look at more in just a moment. But he is not the most admirable of characters. I mean, his, his characteristics, his attitude certainly is not. He kind of seems like a bit of a child. He acts like a bit of a child. Um, now, God still is able to use Samson uh, in, in those moments and even in maybe brief moments of faith to gain a victory. But I think one thing you find time and time again is this notion playing out that Israel overall did what was right in their own eyes, not what was right in the sight of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 8, Moses even warns them, don't you do what is good and wise in your own sight. Verse 28, later on in that chapter, he says, you focus on what is right in God's sight. You focus on what pleases him. Um, but the people just tend to always go back over and over again. Uh, when you look at this, um, as I call it, a standard that they lived by in chapter 2, Chapter 2 of Judges, uh, as I said, uh, we'd be looking at, in, beginning in verse 11, Judges chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. Now, you could read that whole chapter, and I think it would be beneficial. But I just wanted to read these specific verses because, as we were just indicating, what you have is this, this consistent cycle throughout Judges. It, it is not the most positive of reads because as you go throughout, it's almost hard to find who are the good guys, especially when you get to the, the very end of Judges. Judges chapters 19 through 21. Dark story, and it's not talking about Gentiles talking about God's people. Um, and, and, and so they, but all of that is because they, they live by not the standard of what is right in the sight of God, but what is right in, in my own eyes, what is right for, for each one of us. And, and immediately you can hear echoes of, of I think, um, very, very loud, uh, prominent uh, cultural uh, chants that people cry out, 
consistently in our own culture today, in our own society, of, of not, not necessarily right in our own eyes, but you know what? It's my truth. And, and my truth will trump yours well until a certain situation because, it, you know, at some point, something's got to give. Uh, but because that person's truth, well, that supersedes everyone else's truth, what we're saying is we're doing what's right in our own eyes. We don't care about any other standard other than the one that pleases me most, other than the one that pleases my God most, and that is me. Not Jehovah, but me. Putting myself over everyone and everyone else and everything else because I want to be pleased. Now, I want to list not every judge, but just... Uh, well, four to be exact, four judges in this first point. And, and, and we're not going to go throughout their entire life, but just want to mention a couple of things. Um, because when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, even though this is a dark time period of Israel's history, he still mentions certain people as faithful. He mentions certain people in the midst of an evil generation as people that, that you want to look to and try to be like. And I think one of the main reasons, as we'll look at in Hebrews chapter 11 in just a moment, is the very fact that here is faithfulness in the midst of absolutely none. Um, and that's commendable. But the first person I want to look at isn't even a judge. It's, it's uh, Barak or Barak. I'm not exactly sure how you would pronounce that. I'm going to say Barak. He is not even a judge. Actually, at this time in, in Israel's history, Deborah is a judge. And she's the only female judge that, that uh, at least the Bible tells us about, she's the only female judge during that time frame. Now, if you know the story at all, what you find is, is uh, you know, in chapters 4 and 5, in chapter 4, once again, Israel has been led into idolatry, they apostatize, they turn away from God, and so what happens? God brings those who would subdue them, who would oppress them, they suffer. And, and, and so Israel cries out to God. God finally relents of this punishment, and he brings up a judge. <clears throat> and you have a woman like Deborah. And Deborah is a good woman. She's a good example of, of what faithfulness looks like and what a servant of God should look like. However, you have people constantly coming to this kind of situation. First of all, when you look up judges, they tend to put up Barak because, uh, and I think this is interesting, even in like articles written by denominational folks, they will talk about Barak being a judge alongside Deborah. The problem is he wasn't. And I think that's even more indicative of the time period itself, how wicked it had gotten that there was not, there was not one man that was, a, that was a, a judge at that point, but a woman, a keeper of the house, a mother, not a soldier, not this commander of men that Barak was, but it was this woman. Out of everyone, there was one faithful person that could be uh, trusted in that capacity. Now, uh, again, people go down a, a great rabbit hole um, when, when they start talking about Deborah being a woman and being a leader of some sort. But you even look, and we're going to look at this incidentally, in verse 8, as, as Deborah is speaking to Barak, about what he must do, about how he must pursue this enemy, deliver uh, them. It's interesting the way the New American Standard puts this in uh, verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, uh, Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. Now, in the New American Standard, there's a footnote there that almost indicates it as, as a question that kind of suggests this is something that had already been commanded. And what it's taking is Deborah to come up and restate it. Uh, and, and which, if that's the case, that kind of tells you a little bit more what kind of man Barak is. Uh, 
the kind of cowering man that he seems to be, even a commander of many soldiers. How, how much of, for lack of a better term, a wimp he tends to be as you read throughout the story. But as he's being told by Deborah to do this, to follow the command of the Lord, what does he say? I will do everything that I can for the Lord. I am going to rouse the troops. I am going to give out the rally cry, and we are going to do this to the glory of God. He doesn't say that, but in verse 8, it says, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I'm not going. So his focus is not on God, but it's on Deborah, which again, Deborah was a faithful woman. But where should the focus always be? But on God. And in fact, Deborah even kind of, I think, chastises him a little bit through this. In verse 8, or verse 9, after he says that, she says, I will surely go with you, nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Now, let me just suggest, it does not sound like she's saying this in a positive way. What she is almost saying is, it shouldn't be this way. You should not be this way. You should be roused by Yahweh. You should be roused by the God of Israel and the fact that he has chosen you to bring an end to these opponents. And then you get to chapter 5, and you see this wonderful song of victory uh, that they would sing after Sisera's been destroyed, after his, his, his troops have been destroyed. Israel has been given the victory. And where does the honor and glory go? I mean, more so to the one that actually killed Sisera. Uh, and, and even Deborah is mentioned in that song as well. Barak isn't, he, he, he's not mentionless. He is named, but the honor does not go fully to him. It goes to... Uh, those who really almost seems like he was hiding behind. But you even go uh, looking at a more broad level in chapter 5, looking at just the, the nation itself of Israel, the different tribes and how they looked at each other, so different from the way they looked at each other at the end of Joshua, where they were, they were faithful and they were wanting to make sure that each tribe, everyone was doing their part, and that no one was going to go down the route of idolatry, that they were going to stick with Jehovah. And they were going to praise him and only him. In chapter 5 of uh, Judges, in verse 14 beginning, during this song of victory, it says, <clears throat> From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek came down, following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Maker, commanders came down. And from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, as was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds? to hear the piping for the flocks among the divisions of Reuben. There were great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in his ships? Asher sat at the seashore, and I remained by its landings. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death, and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. Now, <clears throat> you have a few uh, uh, fellow countrymen that I think were doing their part, but what you find is not just isolated in, in this story, but all throughout Judges, is that tribes were not really thinking about Israel as, as God's chosen nation, God's holy nation, and his people. They were kind of, it had kind of degraded to the point of, well, I don't, no, I just care about, again, me, me and mine. Um, and, and that would focus more on their tribe over everyone else's. You see this degrade rapidly throughout the time period. Um, and so that's another indicator of this standard in, fu in full effect, because it will get worse. But you look at Gideon. Now here is a judge that is, is 
very interesting and exciting to look at his life and the things that he does. Now, again, we're not going to look at absolutely everything, but just a few things. First of all, in in Judges chapter 6, what you find from the very beginning is the angel speaks about him as this valiant warrior. And Gideon would, he would be a mighty warrior, but he would be a mighty warrior that tested God on numerous occasions. He would, he would faithfully obey God, but almost always after God had to prove himself. Um, and, and, and so you look at even this man who would do great things specifically because God is using him. But in, in, in behind the scenes and when you uh, look at these stories, it's so interesting to find that he is, he's kind of just, he's, he himself along with Barak is, is somewhat of a, a kind of cowering. And cowering behind certain tests, certain people, he questions God at the beginning of this story on why he hasn't sent deliverance already. God comes in and tells him that that Gideon's actually going to be the one that he uses to deliver the people of Israel. And then almost as soon as he gets that knowledge in verses 13 through 15, it's almost like he's kind of questioning that. Well, uh, I I mean, I didn't mean me. I mean, why haven't you brought deliverance? It's kind of like with Habakkuk. Habakkuk starts so despondent because he's saying, talking about his people, why haven't you brought justice? There is evil throughout the land. And God says he's going to bring a nation, a, a, a pagan nation, that is going to bring that judgment. And then when he hears that, he's like, well, I mean, really? Do, you, do we really need to go that far? Um, and I think it's interesting that you kind of see that every now and then, even with men who would be faithful. But Gideon starts out that way. When, he tell, when God says, I'm going to use you, he starts in, in the place that even Moses started at. The difference is I think Moses really grew past that. Gideon really struggles with it. Because you get down to verse 17 of chapter 6, and and I'll go ahead and read that. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is is you who speak with me. He wasn't asking that question, and it didn't seem like he was doubting that before he heard who was going to be delivering. But in verse 18, Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain, remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and leavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat in the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in uh, (laughs) Ophrah of the Abiezerites. Sometimes you just got to just muscle through those words and hope that you uh, say them the right way. Now, I will just say that as you look at how Gideon starts, I don't really want to want to uh, I don't want to insult him so much because I think there are many times where every one of us has moments of doubt, and we need a little bit more help, and we do need a, a, a little bit of re- rebuke at times. But God gives I, I think that space for us to work through those doubts, and I think you even see that here. But yet again. Gideon is going to test God. He's going to put him to the test. He's already proved himself, but before he's going to act, he, he's, I, I need a little bit more. Now, 
I go through this just to say, when you look at Gideon, the part that we want to emulate and imitate the most is not the part where he is saying to God, you must prove yourself and, and, and say, well, that's what I want to do. No, what I want to look at is specifically the moments of faith. It's specifically when Gideon finally does rouse up the courage and for God's glory. Uh, but definitely we don't want to look at that part, uh, at the test itself and say, oh, that's what, that's, what is, that's what we want to teach our children. That's not what we want to teach our children. What we want to teach our children is, do you see what the word of the Lord is? That should be inspiring enough. Uh, and, and so I, I, I think that that is something to note. But, and you even see in verse 27, as he's taking down the idol of his father, of the Baal, uh, the Baal idol, He's still too scared and too timid to do it in broad daylight. He waits till the nighttime to bring it down. And so uh, all that just to say, I think that God gives that room for that growth that is needed. But when we look at these, uh, these characters, we want to make sure that we're being specific on the parts that we want to emulate. Uh, and not just say carte blanche. Well, everything is good. It, this is not a good time frame. And so we want to make sure that we're saying that the parts that are commendable, that's what we want to do. Well, you go beyond that, and you look at the story of Jephthah. Now, I, 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 I have had discussions with people about what, how that story ended, whether Jephthah you know, sacrificed his daughter or not. I've, I can kind of see the argument on both sides. Either way, Jephthah certainly delivers his people, but his decision does not speak well of his relationship with God. And when you look at that, and you talk to people sometimes, and you look at the, the, the conclusion of that story, it is sorrowful. Because either he has sacrificed his child, which is not something that God wanted, or he has taken so little regard and little uh, honor to a vow given to God. Uh, either way, that's not something we want to emulate. And yet you, sometimes you'll have people that just get too in. Um, enveloped in the argument or the debate, let's say, and, and you know, you, uh, essentially you have people get so heated that they come to, to the conclusion of, you know what, we got to keep our vows no matter what, even if it means doing something that God did not want us to do. That's not the lesson. Certainly that's not the faithfulness uh, that, that we're supposed to take from Jephthah's story. But you look throughout the story and you find those moments of courageousness, you find those moments of, 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 of uh, true uh, righteous behavior. Um, but you don't want to go too far as you look throughout that story and say, oh, this, this part where, where God even says later on in the prophets, well, I mean, even in the law of Moses, but even later on in the prophets, this is something that never came into my mind. Sacrificing of children, yes, let's do. No, no, we're, we're not going to take that lesson. And so we want to think about that. Uh, finally, you look at Samson, and I already kind of indicated um, some things about Samson already. He did some amazing things. I mean, he was strong. He, he, he did things that are impossible for people to do. But even with those amazing things, parents, when you look at the story of Samson and you look at how he treats his parents and you look at the decisions that he makes, how he makes them, the thought process he has, even though he does amazing things, would you want your kids to act like him? No, I want you to go and you find me that one because I like the way she looks. Listen. This could be really bad. Don't you think you should be marrying, like God has told you, don't you think you should be marrying among your countrymen, those who have the same beliefs, not an idolater? He's, I don't care. Bring her to me. Even beyond that, his reactions to, to uh, several different uh, situations, 
It does not seem like he is the most mature of men. He has, he has great strength, um, but it doesn't seem like he has much strength up here half of the time. Because he acts out in, in really immature anger with, with no patience whatsoever. He doesn't even try to think ahead. He just immediately reacts as soon as he's slighted. Now, looking at that character, that is not the part I want to emulate. And that's not the part I want my children to emulate. But I do want to emulate the parts where God says he was faithful. Over in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> beginning in verse 32. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I... I, I I go through all that to say we need to understand how dark this time was in Israel's history. But we never want to go so far to the other extreme that, that, that this means that there is no redeeming factor. No, there is. The Hebrew writer, God says there is in even some of these men. And I think that should be encouraging. One reason I say that is because you have extremely imperfect men. Granted. Yet through those incredibly imperfect men, God is able to bring about a victory for his people. And, and a victory that lasts, at least for some time, until they rebel. But it is a victory that lasts. And I think that should be encouraging. That even though you have, you have one character that is surrounded by a whole generation of evildoers, a whole generation of people that are supposed to be holy, but are completely immoral, doing right in their own eyes instead of what is right in God's sight. And you have men that are standing up and, and, and will, even though they are imperfect, they will go against that common flow. And they're going to try and, 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 and bring some level of honor to God's name. I think that should be encouraging for us, especially when you think about the culture that surrounds us and how anti-holy uh, and anti-righteous uh, the rhetoric gets. Uh, we, I, I definitely think that we can find some encouragement there. Faithfulness was certainly the rarity of the time, but I think that's what makes them all the more um, all the more impressive. Because it was so rare, it would be so easy to just go in and, and, and you know, go with the flow. But they chose differently. Uh, and certainly there's an application, application for us there. But finally, I just want to end with, with uh, three applications here. And the first being of, of uh, talking about where all of this leads when we do what is right in our own eyes. First of all, it leads ultimately to a different religion. It leads to apostasy. And we've talked about that word a couple of times in the Bible class. Today even, it leads to us turning away from God, ultimately. Um, in Judges chapter 17, we don't have enough time to read all of it, but Judges chapter 17, you meet a Levite uh, and, and, and a man named Micah. And they are, again, just going along the flow of, of every other Israelite at the time. Uh, here's a man who... Is first spoken of about stealing his mother's fortunes. His mother curses him, but then he tells her that it was actually him. He confesses. She blesses him. And, and you know what? Because, because they uh, have, have mended this relationship, because he's come forward like this, we're going to give honor to God. How do they give honor to God? They're going to make an ephod, an ephod for this man. They're going to make household idols. Oh, uh, what glory to God this is going to bring. 
and you, and you can and we're not going to read it all but in Judges chapter 17 verses 3 through uh, 13 you find that they try to mix in the Lord's name with all kinds of things that he says this is absolutely not supposed to be connected to me household idols graven images no no that that, that you don't just get to <laughs> Mix God's name into these things to rubber stamp it with his authority. That's not how this works. It's not how God's authority works. But I think this is one of the things that throughout Judges you see the people doing. It's so funny to me. It is hilarious to me that you look in the law of Moses and what does God say? If even your family member goes out and tries to convince you to follow after another God, which is not a God, but a God that is not me, you are to be the first person to stretch out your hand against them. You are supposed to be the one to, to cast the first stone. That's written in the law of Moses. You get to Judges and you get to Gideon when he takes down the altar of Baal, his father's altar uh, to Baal. And the people come to them and they say, "Not we have, you have gone against God and you have built for yourself an idol. You need to be put to death. They say, hey, this, this guy, your son Gideon who took down the, the, the altar for Baal, he needs to be put to death. That is how far they had gone. And I do think it's interesting that because I think you find that same application today. And this is one of the reasons I picked up that article in the bulletin. It tends to be that people are okay when things are brought into what the Bible has to say. And, and you know, you have Christians that say, well, we just we want to try and get along and we want, to, we want to be at peace with all men. And that's true. We want to be at peace with all men. But that doesn't mean you compromise and you bring things in because, hey, we want peace. No, compromising is not a part of that. And in fact, when you go the other way around and the world says because you look at Christianity, you look at what the message of Christ is, and that says, I am exclusive and it is not many paths to me, it is one and I'm it. The world hates that message. And they, oh, they will castigate that as soon as they hear it. But the other way around, you, you hear people say things like, well, well you, let's not cause a ruck. We already are. <laughs> If you're living by the gospel, you already are. And so let's, let's not have, give ourselves silly, uh, silly rules like that of compromising when it's not going to do us any good in the long run anyway. And in fact, it does us great damage because we're sinning against God. So it leads to apostasy. But it also leads to, I would say, depravity. And I, I'm not using that word in the same way that much of the denominational world uses it. But I do use it because... I mean, th this is the outcome of every man doing what he thinks is right. We don't have enough time to read Judges 19 through 21, and that is by design because it would be uncomfortable. Have you ever read that story? Here's a second Levite, and he has a concubine. And what happens? He goes, he, he goes after her. He finds her in her father's house. They finally leave. They're about to stop in, uh, at, at the nighttime. They're about to stop in a Gentile city. And, and, and they say, you know what? This is a Gentile city. We're not going to lay here. We're going to be among God's people. And they do. They leave the Gentile city. They get to, God's, uh, they get to a, a city that is within the confines of Israel that is supposed to be God's people. And what happens? You have essentially the story of Sodom and Gomorrah replaying itself. But the difference here is it doesn't conclude with Sodom being destroyed. It doesn't conclude with Israel being destroyed. It ends with where that was inevitably going to end, had God not intervened. And so they, they get to the, their, their fellow Israelites' land, 
they're in the house uh, of the old man. The old man is, is, I can't remember his name, but he is, he is trying to, to uh, keep, uh, keep them safe from the men, Israelites, who are coming to them saying, give us the men, we want to have relations with them. The man even offers his daughter. His daughter, he offers the Levites concubine. They get mad, they don't want that, but the concubine gets left out, and she is assaulted and ravaged the entire night to the point where the next morning she is dead on the doorstep. And it doesn't stop there because the, the Levite, the one that should be even, even more saturated in God's holy and righteous word, the Levite takes that body, he cuts it up, and he sends it throughout the tribes of Israel. And he says, never has anything like this been seen in the days of Israel. And you know what? He's right. But I just wonder, <laughs> I wonder uh, if he doesn't realize the dramatic irony there. Of, he is, he's just as much responsible there. Terrible dark story and it's within God's own people not even a Gentile city now all that just to say you want to you want to go by this standard you want to go by what is right in every man's sight fine you can do that but this is where it ends and this is what happens when God does not intervene people look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah they say how could God do that how could he be so wrathful how could he be I mean I thought he was supposed to be slow to anger and I think yeah he is and that should tell you something about what happened there. That should, tell you what hap that should tell you something about what happened at the flood. I don't think that God was just being flippant. I think that when it says that there were only eight righteous souls left, the Holy Spirit means it. And that means the entire world, everyone else, was completely immoral and completely against God. And had he waited any longer, there may not have been any more righteous souls left to save. And so I do think God is slow to anger. And I think he waits until he cannot wait any longer. And I think that should help mend our thoughts on those kinds of stories. And someone would look at Sodom and Gomorrah and say, how, how flippant of God. That is a better conclusion. That's a better ending than what you see here. <laughs> because this is, where, this is where it always leads. Absolute depravity. We don't have enough time to go to Romans chapter 1. But you just see where this depraved mind comes from. It comes from abandoning God and thinking that, you know, starting to worship the creation over the creator. And we're going to make myself, everything that I want, my passions, that's going to be the master. And we are enslaved to an even uh, more burdensome and a, and a, a greater, uh, in terms of evil, uh, taskmaster. And so it, it leads us to great depravity. Finally, it leads us to destruction. And that much is clear, but going back in chapter 14 of Judges, Judges chapter 14, I want to look at just one verse here. Judges chapter 14, here's Samson, he marries one of the daughters of the Philistines. You know this story, you know how it ends. It is so interesting what he says here in verse 3. As, as his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. In the New American Standard, there's a footnote there at the very end of that, uh, uh, in Samson's response of verse 3. He says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. She's right in my sight. And what happens? He does what's right in his eyes, and it leads to his humiliating and, and breathtakingly uh, uh, the betrayal is so great, being his wife. It leads to his death, and, and a terrible, humiliating death at that. 
And I just think that that's an interesting example uh, when you see the same words being used. The theme, one of the main themes I think that you see throughout Judges, this is where it goes, even for the strongest man that ever lived probably. I don't know, maybe Goliath was up there, but I think he was probably stronger. Either way, he was a strong man. He could defend himself. But it took a, a feeble little woman. And it took the, the, the annoyance of that daily vexing. It says his soul was vexed to death. But hey, it was right in his own sight. But this is where it leads. Every single time to destruction. And you could look at other passages where God says, don't try and call good evil and evil good. Don't try to mix these things up. Because when you do, the judgment will come. And I will not relent from that judgment even though you are my own people. If you are guilty, if you prove yourself to be my opponent, my enemy, I will bring it swiftly. And so I want to leave us with those thoughts this morning of, of that message. And again, please don't think that, that I'm saying, when you look at Hebrews chapter 11 as he writes about Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, that I'm saying that, that the Hebrew writer was wrong about those men. Uh, in fact, I think it is encouraging, as we already indicated, to see such men exalted by God as faithful. But remember, I think one of the main reasons is because there was almost no faithfulness whatsoever at that time. And so I think it's more encouraging when you think about the gospel message. Because if God could bring about victory through such flawed, imperfect, and at times selfish individuals, what could he possibly do with you? Someone who I don't think anyone in this room would be as, as, as uh, petty as Samson, as cowardly as Barak, as selfish as Gideon at times. I think that someone who truly wants to be holy because their God is holy. I think someone that wants to give themselves over to God, not just because, well, someone else is doing it and so they're going to follow suit, but because of what he has done for us. I can't imagine all the things, all the things that God could accomplish through that zealous and sincere servant. Well, maybe, maybe you could, because you got a pretty good example in Jesus. You have a pretty good example in David. And so I want to look like those men not, and, and not be uh, resigned to be, be happy about the, the, the flaws of, of maybe the, the poorer examples. But if we have the right mindset, the right attitude, I want to please the Lord. What victories could he bring about, especially in our salvation? Are you a Christian this morning? Have you given yourself to God? Have you been added into his church, his kingdom? Have you made Christ your king? If not, please let us assist you in that. You can repent of your sins, confess that he is the son of the living God, and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of his life. If you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.